Now here in 1 Corinthians 7, we see both instruction and wisdom. Uh, there are some things here which are commands, and commands we have to obey. And to disobey will be sin. Furthermore, we are to obey them from the heart. Uh, if we've been born again, we've been given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit points us to the Lord Jesus who died for our sins and therefore gives us the motivation uh, to glorify God. And he gives us the power to do so. And he writes his law on our hearts. He causes us to want to obey. Now, we still have the sinful nature that wants to rebel, but the Spirit is leading us to holiness. And the Spirit wants us to listen to the law properly, from our inside. Because as you go on, as we read this passage, I'm not going to point out the bits necessarily, but you'll see them. There are kinds of things where you can keep the letter of the command, but not the spirit. Like the Pharisees did with the law of Moses. Right? You can dot the I's and cross the T's, but in such a way, to, 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 but in such a way as to minimize obedience. To, 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 to say, yeah, okay, I've done that, but to do as little as possible. Uh, and that's not what God wants. God wants us to obey from the heart. Furthermore, there's a kind of obedience the Spirit leads us to in, in obedience to the will of God that cannot be controlled by legislation. There are some things in this passage that are easy. There's black and white. You're free to do this. You're not free to do that. And there are some, some things that are not so simple. There are some things we're told principles. Um, we're told the spirit of the law, but not the letter. And you can't legislate about those things. But the Spirit teaches us to understand the principles and to seek to apply them to the heart uh, together with other competing principles and in our own situations. The whole point is that we want to please God. Because we love Him. So we're trying to work out how we can do that. And there are other things here that are not a matter of right and wrong, but of good and better. Now, what is good and what is better will sometimes depend on our circumstances, and we need to make decisions on these matters with minds that have been renewed by the Spirit. That is, minds that have the gospel as their controlling factor and priority. And we'll see some of those things here as well. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen how seriously God takes the sin of sexual immorality, haven't we? Right, in chapter 5, man who was openly immoral was to be kicked out of church. In chapter 6, we are reminded that to continue to live a life of sexual immorality was to show evidence that we are not truly saved. And then, at the end of chapter 6, we are reminded to flee sexual immorality. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We can't profane God's temples with sexual sin. Furthermore, we are not our own. We were bought with a price, the blood of Christ. We are His holy people who belong to Him. And so we need to glorify God with our bodies. Paul now turns to answer some of the questions that the Corinthians had, had written to him about. But the topic of sexual immorality is still very much at hand. And the first group that he addresses are married couples. And the message he has for married couples, and I can see there are a number of married couples here, not just one or two, so that's okay. The, the message he has for married couples is this. Married couples ought to have sex regularly. Right? Married couples ought to have sex regularly. Let me show you as we work through verses 1 to 6 of the passage. Uh, Paul begins in verse 1 by quoting them. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Interesting, isn't it, they said that? Because you've got some people in the Corinthian church who are being sexually immoral, and then you've got other people frowning on people having any sex at all. But God is not against sex. It was his idea in the first place. 
Uh, sex was created by God for marriage and within marriage to picture the, the spiritual unity between Christ and the church. Yes, it was created for procreation, but also for pleasure. Uh, it is the covenant sign, the, the act that seals the marriage union. It's the act that, that it goes together with the covenant promise that everything that I am is yours, and forsaking all others, I faithfully and exclusively love you as long as we both shall live. And every time a married couple has sex, it's a renewal of that covenant. It's the binding with the, with the pleasurable glue that God gives to keep it together. It's not sex that God's against. It's the distortion of sex. It's when you take something that is so powerful for good within the context of marriage, and you misuse it for something else. It's sex, sexual immorality, that is sex that's outside the marriage covenant that God hates. And sexual immorality must be avoided. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, as in have, not have, his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. That is, it is not an order to everyone you have to acquire a wife or husband. It's assuming you do have a wife or husband, and you have to have regular sexual intercourse with them. And avoid having sex with other people by having sex with your spouse. And make sure you help your spouse avoid sexual immorality by having sex with them. Verse 3. The husband should give his, to his wife a conjugal right, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now that's, that's okay translation, but just a little bit wrong impression that it's the word right is not there in the text. The translation sometimes can, can make it look like it's something you can demand from the other person. Human rights. Right? But it's not quite like that. The emphasis is actually the other way around. The husband should give his wife the debt, the obligation, the duty, right? and vice versa. In other words, it's not just something you it's not something you demand from your spouse, it's something you, you give to your spouse. It's your responsibility to do that. Now just because it's your duty doesn't mean it's not fun or anything like that. But it does mean it's not optional. First of all. For well, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Now, that's not, un, un, that's not an unusual thing to say in the culture of the ancient Greek or Roman world. But here's the next radical one. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. That cuts across their culture. Right? The mutuality here is very clear. If you're married then you do not belong to yourself anymore, you belong to your spouse. And your spouse doesn't belong to himself or herself anymore, he or she belongs to you. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And so Paul says in verse 5, do not deprive one another. The word deprive there is actually the word for cheat or rob or, or, or defraud. Don't rob each other of sex. Don't cheat your partner by withholding from them. Don't, don't use sex as a weapon to get what you want. It's, it's not a weapon, it's not a bargaining chip. You owe it to them. It's something that you, that you give freely to your husband or to your wife. It's for them, because your body is for them, and their body is for you. Now, of course, Paul's name is in a general sense, not an absolute one. And he goes on to give an example of exceptions to the rule, but here's the principle. The principle still applies. Right? Don't stop having sex with your spouse. But, 
He says, maybe it's okay to take a little break sometime, but for a, for a good reason. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except by, except perhaps by agreement, that is, both of you agree, not just one of you, for a limited time, not too long, don't let it be open-ended, that you may devote yourself to prayer, not so that you can do more work in the office or so you can watch more sports on TV, you know, or you can begin to come around or something like that. But then, come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right. If you don't do that, well, you should come back again, because Satan's going to be after you. This prayer, instead of sex thing, Paul says, it's dangerous. It's not so keen on He allows it, verse 6, as a concession, not a command. He doesn't want to encourage it. Interesting, isn't it? Many Christians would have said prayer is the command and sex is the concession. But here, prayer is the concession and sex is the command. We are to glorify God with our bodies. We saw that last week. And part of using our bodies to glorify Him is to have sex with our husband or wife, for they are good to His glory. Now, of course, there's times when and that is not possible. Times when there's illness or disability. That's, 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 it's not an absolute thing. There are times when our own decisions make it hard to do things like that. It's particularly difficult when husband and wife are separated for significant periods of time. So I always try to discourage couples from living in different places and only seeing each other on holidays or special occasions. A lot of people do it. One of, the, one of the many reasons why it's not a good idea is this one. Thinking about having husband or wife live in different countries and different cities and protected periods, we advise you please reconsider. Think of a different way to order your work. It's not, it's not an absolute thing. I don't judge those who do it. There might have other good reasons which outweigh the advice, but if you're thinking of doing it, it should really be one of your last resources. Last resource. Don't just do it to get a better money and a better job or something like that. You're going to do it, be very, very careful. Satan will attack you. You're in danger of sexual immorality. Whatever else you do, you must make sure you put every effort to get together as often as you can and have sex with each other as much as you can. Like this is important. I was going to tell you that, but it's in the scriptures. The other time when it's hard to obey this command is, is when sex is traumatic for one party in the marriage. There can be times due to various issues in the class where sex is a scary thing, not a joyous one. And those are times when love and understanding are needed on both sides. Remember to be other person centered. So if you're the spouse of someone like that, then remember you are to love your wife or husband. And in situations like that, then love means being kind and gentle with, and not demanding sex when it's going to be distressing. And by doing that, you're also showing your spouse that sex with you is different uh, from whatever it was that was so distressing in the past. But if you are the effective party, then please do work hard to try and overcome that problem. Uh, and as far as you can, work with your spouse on it. Get counseling if you need it. Don't give up on it. Find ways of pleasuring your spouse that you're comfortable with and then work up from there. Don't just do it for your own sake. Do it for the sake of your spouse. 
The other time where it's hard to obey his command is when the relationship is difficult. It's hard to have sex with someone at night when you spend the day yelling at them. If that's the case, you have to work on the relationship. Sex can be part of that, but what's more to it? How about getting some marriage counseling? What trained people here can help you? How to work on these things? It's important. And of course, you need to make time for sex. You spend all your time at work or watching sports on TV or even doing ministry, and you don't have time for sex. Well, that's wrong. God says so. Give your partner what you own. Don't defraud your wife or husband. Another reason why Christian couples sometimes don't have sex is they've been affected by asceticism. Asceticism is not a disease. It's a philosophy. Asceticism is the belief that you get more spiritual by renouncing worldly pleasures. Or sometimes, in extreme cases, by inflicting pain or discomfort on oneself. It is the opposite of prosperity theology, but just as wrong. The Bible is against it. Paul fights against it in many of his letters. It's still there. It's still there. Many religions are still there in the history of Christianity. And even if we don't believe it, ideas will still peep in from time to time. There's a guy called Bishop Ives of Chartres, lived about 1,180. And he taught couples to abstain from sex on Thursdays in memory of the arrest of our Lord, on Fridays in honor of his death, on Saturdays in honor of the Virgin Mary, on Sundays in commemoration of the resurrection, and on Mondays out of respect for the faith of the Father. That's asceticism. God says, go for it. Married couples ought to have sex, but now there's no rule about once a week or you know, whatever it is. You know, different people have different, different, uh, different frequencies. All those kind of things. There's nothing really more. In the next section, Paul addresses single people. Now, that's very interesting what he says here because most cultures don't see singleness as being a valid choice. Now, single people here, you know exactly what that's like, don't you? Right? Whenever you go for family gatherings, the aunties come to you and say, Hey, you got a boyfriend yet? Right? Or when are you going to get married? I heard of someone who's all aunties and nudged him at every family wedding and say, You next, huh? Two ones, they went for a family funeral, he nudged her, You next, huh? <laughs> well, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, not only allows things, but actually encourages it as a positive thing. Uh, Paul wishes, he says in verse 7, that all were as myself am. He wishes they were all a single. Now, don't get me wrong, that's, that's just his preference. It's not a moral commandment. And he's not saying everyone ought to be single. He knows God has ordered things differently. He's saying it's okay. As far as I'm concerned, it's okay to be single. It's cool. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, I'd like it if everyone was. Well, he knows it's not God's plan. It's not going to be. But just like later on in chapter 14, he's going to say, I wish everyone's looking at us. But he knows it's not God's plan. And he's, he's, in fact, it's in the context of trying to downplay the gift of See, Paul knows that everyone is different. Everyone's got a different gift. Verse 7 continues, But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. If you are single, then the gift God is giving you right now is singleness. And if you are married, then the gift God is giving you right now is marriage. So when he glorified God in, in God, 
which are one year. When he addresses the unmarried and widows, verse 8, he says, it's actually good for them to remain single as I am. He doesn't say why, he'll tell later. But, he says, it's good to be single. Now, it's okay not to be, right? You can't exercise self-control, verse 9. They can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. In other words, with passion there is actually not in the original. Right? It just says it's better to marry than to burn. It could be that he means burn with passion, or it could be that he means burn in hell. But whatever the case is, sex is a good reason for marriage. It's not the only reason for marriage, but it's a good one. If you're single, then you're allowed to get married and have sex. It's actually good, though, if you can handle it to remain single. There's good things about being single. That is not only radical in cultural terms, but it's actually radical in biblical terms. It's radical in terms of God's, God's plan for marriage. Because remember, back in Genesis, God told humankind, be fruitful and multiply. God said it is not good for a man to be alone. And now he says, it is good. What's changed? Why is it not only okay, but it's, it's good to be single? Oh, Paul will come to that later, so you wait and see. But now we can say that single people are allowed to get married. That was good to see. Now there is a saying that grass is always greener on the other side. And sometimes people who are single think that if they get married, then all their problems will be solved. Oh, actually, no, lah. Huh? They just get changed. In fact, the very things that stop you from being content in your singleness are also often the very things that make it difficult in your marriage. Uh, take, for example, the concept of... Or the, uh, the, take, for example, when, when, when the concept of marriage is idolized. You forget that the only marriage that can truly satisfy is the ultimate marriage between Christ and the Church, and that's coming on the other side of the center. And you think that to be truly satisfied, what you really need is a partner. If you're single, if you really believe that, if you're single, that is going to make you miserable. And if you're married, that is going to make you and your partner miserable. Because he's not going to be able to live up to your expectations, and you are going to resent him for it. Sometimes being single can be hard. Sometimes being married can be hard. There are challenges both ways. But while single people are free to get married, married people are not free to divorce. So, Paul addresses the married people again in the next section. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And when he says not I, but the Lord, he, what it means is he's quoting a direct teaching of Jesus. Right? This is something that Jesus taught in the Gospels. The teaching is this. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Right? Wife should not separate from the husband and if you separate, then don't go and marry somebody else. Be ready to be reconciled. Divorce is not meant to be an option for Christians. It's never meant to be. Whenever there's married problems, the goal is always reconciliation. Occasionally, in a sinful and broken world, separation and divorce has to be a concession. 
And there are times, sadly, when the situation is such that it is the lesser of two evils. Paul doesn't give details here, you can imagine them. Maybe there's domestic violence, it's not safe for the woman to be at home anymore. Maybe there's such a terrible breakdown in relationship that it's no trust there, can't be rebuilt, and it happens now. Cases like that, what do you, you can separate first, but still try to work it out. Don't go off to somebody else. No, you're still committed to your partner, even though you're not living with it. The goal is always reconciliation. You can't control the other party, it doesn't all depend on you. But if you're divorced and remain unmarried, or be reconciled. Now that's hard to say. You will not hear that either. That's the teaching. Jesus said that in me. General principle is Jesus does not allow divorce or marriage. I'll change minds. In our culture, divorce and marriage is becoming more and more popular, isn't it? But when I was a kid, it's unusual here in Malaysia. It was already quite usual in the West, but very unusual here. But it's becoming more and more the case here as well. Christians are meant to follow Jesus regardless of culture. Jesus says no divorce and marriage. Reconcile or be ready to reconcile. That's the general principle. Married people are generally not free to divorce and to remarry. However, there are a couple of points where the Bible does give exemptions to this. That is, this is the principle, not the absolute. The exemption is not there to devalue the principle or to become a thin end of the wedge to undermine it. It's not there to give people an excuse to divorce and remarry because remember, God wants us to obey from the heart. We've got to disobey. We've got to just try and dot the I's and cross the T's and that's not the point. But when Jesus told us against divorce and remarriage, he also put it with an exception. Come with me, leave your, leave your little yellow things Things, right in 1 Corinthians 7. They come with me to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, which is on page 994. 993, 994. And there, the uh, Pharisees have come to Jesus and talk about divorce, and Jesus says, No. Right? What God has joined together, let not men separate. And then here he says in verse 9, he says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, we're saying you cannot divorce your wife and go and marry somebody else. You do that if you divorce your wife and marry someone else, well, actually, you're committing adultery. Right? Just because you can legally do it, doesn't mean that you, are, yeah, you can do it. Right? You're still committing adultery. But he says, except for sexual immorality. Where there is sexual immorality, then something's different there, because adultery is already taking place and ruined the marriage. Like the one flesh union has already been listedly made with somebody else. Because... Plan for marriage has already been slaughtered and destroyed and doesn't reflect Christ in the church, the bond is broken, and well, that's the grounds for divorce. It doesn't mean you have to divorce. You can still be gracious. You can still forgive. But grace cannot be demanded 
Grace cannot be legislative time. If you're going to be gracious, then you must be free not to be. That's what grace is, isn't it? And so with sexual immorality, then you are free to divorce. And as your, as your husband or your wife has already destroyed the marriage, then you remarry. That is not God's plan. That is not God's desire. But God's plan and desire has already been destroyed. And in a broken, sinful world, given an immoral and cheating spouse, then God allows it. But otherwise, the husband and wife should not separate from each other. And if they do, then remain ready to be reconciled. Keep that stance. Ready to be reconciled. Married people are generally not free to divorce or remarry. That is the principle. What if your spouse is not a believer? Does the same thing apply? Because we know we're only supposed to marry believers. So if your spouse is not a believer, do you rectify the situation by divorcing him? Or is it the case that once you're married, you're married, and that's it, and it doesn't matter who it is? Well, Paul applies a principle that he will expand on later, and it's this. It is usually right to remain with God in the social situation you are in when you are saved. Remain with God in the social situation you were in when you were saved. Now, in the specific case of a marriage to an unbeliever, Paul doesn't have a direct word from Jesus on this, so he prefaces his answer in verse 12, back to 1 Corinthians 7. He prefaces his answer in verse 12, for the rest I say, I got the law. Now, sometimes people read that and say, okay, Paul, this is just, this is just Paul's opinion, right? It's not the law, it's going to have to follow. Actually, no, no, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he's writing his Holy Scripture. Not just because it's Paul's, not Jesus's, it doesn't mean he can take it or leave it. Where there's an area of freedom, where it's where he's giving pastoral advice in a specific situation where, where he thinks, look, I think this, but you're actually free to do something else, then he'll tell us, like, okay? But when he says, mm, then it's, mm, you know what I mean? Okay? Uh, and here he's very clear. Uh, what does he say? If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, that's pretty straightforward. If your spouse is not a believer, there is no excuse to divorce him or her. I can't say, oh, become a Christian now and change my Christian heart. Someone might ask, but if you're one of God's holy people, wouldn't being married to someone who is unholy defile you? But can you be united with Christ, and then with united with a spouse who's not a believer in Christ? Uh, and Paul says, don't worry about that, because, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, it doesn't mean the unbelieving spouse is actually saved. Right? Verse 16 is going to raise the possibility that they might be saved, which means they're not automatically saved. But it does mean that they are holy. In some way, they are set apart from the rest of the world. They are special. Because they're united in marriage to someone who belongs to Christ. And in fact, the family is special. As far as the church is concerned, the family is considered holy, separate, different, in the same kind of way as a Christian family. 
are there to be accepted as part of the community of God's people, even though one of those classes is not actually saved. And the children will be considered part of the congregation. We will seek to bring them in. And so in our context, we will be prepared to baptize the children from mixed marriages in the same way as we baptize children of both Christian parents. And we will welcome unbelieving husbands and wives of Christians into our midst. Seems to be right to remain with part of the social situation we were when we were saved. Certainly right to do that in marriage. Christian husband is not to divorce his non-Christian wife. Christian wife is not to divorce her non-Christian husband. On the other hand, the non-Christian partner could well initiate a divorce. And they don't know Jesus as Lord, or Paul as an apostle, and so they've got no reason they want to listen to them, what they have to say about marriage and divorce. So they might go ahead and seek divorce. Now, what's the Christian going to do? Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, that would be so. It's not your fault they've left you. You haven't left them. Early on, Paul said, if you divorce your husband and wife, you have to stay single or be reconciled. But in such cases, verse 15, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You've been deserted. Marriage bond was broken by your non-Christian spouse. You are free from the marriage. And therefore, you are free to remarry. However, that's not what you wanted. It's not what you aimed for. That's not what you tried to achieve. But remember, we are under the new covenant. We obey Christ from the heart. And we'll make every effort to reconcile with our non-Christian spouse. And we'll say, okay, okay. Uh, you, both me, right? Then I'm, you know, huh? No, no, no. Right. You don't use it as a provision or excuse to divorce and remarry. But it does take two to tango. And if your husband is unwilling, well, if he's a Christian, the church can talk to him. You can say, no, you've got to go to work things out with your wife. Now, if wife is unwilling, and she's a Christian, no, no, okay, you're separated, but you come back with someone else because you've got to go and try and reconcile to your husband. But if your partner's non-Christian, the church can't say anything, can they? No, no standing. They will do as they please. And there's no point fighting and forcing them. God has called you to peace. Better God. But remember, you do it with a heavy heart. What do you want to do? I'm trying to get out of a marriage with a non-Christian. But you're trying to say to your non-Christian partner. Verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know you will save your wife? You've got to try your best with the spouse you have. Stay where you are. Let God call you to Christ. Principles with restating verse 17. Only let each person lead the life of God as a sign and to which God has called. This is my rule in all the churches. Now that same principle applies in other areas as well. Paul goes off his main point a little bit to show that. Uh, so he says, if you're a Jew, don't try and become a Gentile. If you're a Gentile, don't try and become a Jew. Uh, verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Again, this is principle, not law. And there'll be exceptions to it. Paul circumcised Timothy, didn't he? 
uh, that was sort of keep preach the gospel to the Jews. That doesn't change the principle. The principle is you don't get circumcised into a Gentile just because you've been you just become a Christian, so because you need to be a Jew, because God saves Gentiles. And you don't go and try and surgically mask your circumcision if you're a Jew, uh, when you're saved, because, because God saves Jews. It's usually right to remain with God in the social situation you were in when you were saved. But again, this is principle, not moral, absolute. And there are times when you, well, when you change if you can, but remain if you must. An example of that is in verse 21. That is, if you were a slave when you were called. Were you a slave when you were called? Um, that might be a problem because you might think, if I'm a Christian, I'm a slave, but I'm a slave of Christ. If I'm a slave of Christ, how can I be a slave of somebody else? And Paul says, what does he say? If you're a slave when you were called, verse 21, don't be concerned about it. Right? That's your situation when you were called, then it's okay. But, verse 21 continues, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Here's a situation where it's okay to remain, but change if you can. If you can't legitimately change, right, then don't go and like, run away from your master because you worry about being incompatible with being a Christian. Bro. You can still rejoice in the fact that you are free in Christ. Verse 22, for he was called in the Lord as a slave, as a free man, of the law. Likewise, he who was a slave when he was called, sorry, likewise, he who was free when he was called was a slave of Christ. Of course, if you are a Christian already, then don't ever let yourself become a slave, because you are a slave of Christ. You were, verse 13, 23, bought with a price, so do not become slaves of men. I sort of choose to go into slavery, but if you're already there, then that's okay. Get out of it, get out of it. If you can't, it's okay. Now, that may not be slavery anymore, but many times people feel trapped in their circumstances. Maybe you become a Christian, maybe, and you want to go into full-time ministry, but you've got a big loan to pay off from before, and you need to work at a job that pays well so that you're able to be faithful with your obligations. Maybe you're married to a non-Christian who's not so supportive of your church ministry, and you've got to limit how much time you can spend in this area. If you can't change your circumstances, then be content. It's okay. Not everyone has the freedom that everyone else in church has. You mustn't expect that from everyone. You mustn't judge each other's commitment to Christ based on it. But if you do have the choice, where you do have the choice, then you maximize the freedom you have to serve Christ and His gospel. But where you don't have the choice, then remain as you are, with God. God is with you in your circumstance, and He will give you the strength to endure in the midst of it. So once again, the principle, verse 24, whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Right, so we've seen that it's generally right to remain in the social situation you were in where you were saved. We've seen where it applies to married people. How does it apply to single people who are thinking of getting married? If you were single when you were saved, does that mean you should always stay single? Well, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Again, Jesus doesn't command things either way, he just doesn't talk about it, but the Apostle Paul is going to give his verdict as a trustworthy representative of the Lord Jesus. Here it is in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, 
it is good for a person to remain as he is. It's not saying a person has to remain as he is. It's just saying it is good for a person to remain as he is. And the reason he gives is in view of the present distress. Now that could mean either difficulties between Christ's first coming and second coming, or it could be that there was something going on in Corinth at the time that was pretty bad. Like, uh, there's evidence of uh, perhaps famine, um, or uh, some kind of plague, people dying. Um, could be that, or it could be the other. But what he's saying is, in light of your circumstances, verse 27, keep the status quo. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from, free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Keep the status quo. But if you don't want to, that's okay. That is, if you want to go ahead and get married, that's still okay. Right? That was just my advice. Continues on, says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Right? So what's the verdict from the apostle? Same as we had last time. Right? It's good to be single, but you're allowed to be married. This time, though, he actually explains why it's good to be single. Continues. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. What does it mean that those who marry have worldly troubles? Like those who marry them. Right? This is what I mean, brothers. He explains. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as those who have as they, as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present one the world is passing away. See, the Bible teaches that the world is coming to an end. Jesus is going to come back to wind up history, to judge the living and the dead. We don't know when it's going to come, but it will come, and it will come soon. Every distress we face in this world, every crisis, like the crisis the Corinthians were facing, reminds us of this. We live in the time between Jesus' death and resurrection and he's coming again. This is the last days. It's like in a football match. It's an extra time. This is like when you're playing basketball and you know the score is tied and they call a timeout just like just a few seconds before the end, right? And you're blasting. You've got to go back and go. you got to just put everything into it. Right? This is the last days. This is the extra time. And so we need to concentrate. You need to be single-minded about serving Jesus. Now, 2,000 years later, we're still in extra time. And we still need to be single-minded. In fact, we're even closer to the end than the Corinthians were. The referee can blow the whistle at any point. So we've got to prioritize God and His kingdom. We've got to prioritize the going out of the gospel. We've got to prioritize the making of disciples. Because, because time is short. We're still living in the last days. Now, how does that affect marriage? Well, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. See, if you're married, then you have to have spend time and energy pleasing your husband or your wife. It comes with a job. Right? You're not meant to live like a single person when you're married. Your interests are necessarily divided. They are divided. And because we're living in the last days, and because there's an urgency for the gospel to go back, well, that's a good reason not to get married. 
If you're not married, you can concentrate on serving God in other ways. You don't have to worry about pleasing the spouse, you don't have to worry about raising the family, so it's good reasons for being single. Now, remember, this is pretty radical in light of God's plan for humanity, because what is God's plan? Marriage? Not good for man to be alone. It's be fruitful and multiply. But even though this is God's, God's plan for humanity in creation, the work of the Gospels is even more important. Making disciples of all the nations is even more important than being fruitful and multiply. Because Gospel work leads to the real marriage, that is the real marriage between Christ and His Church, that all the other marriages are just, well, just shadows of it. That's the real marriage. And so, if you're going to spend, it's actually a good thing to spend time working at the real marriage. That means that you're going to give up time on the picture marriage. Then, then that's, that's an okay thing to do. That's, it's a good thing to do. That's why people like John Stott and many others have said, "Okay, I'm going to concentrate on the work of the gospel, and not get married." That's a very good reason to choose to be single. Now, does that mean all Christians should not get married? Mean all Christians should be single? No. It's up to you. God actually lets us choose. Verse 35. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the law. He Paul's not laying down the law. He's teaching us how to think spiritually about things. It's okay, you want to get married, go ahead. That gives a good reason not to. But, you know, if you're engaged, going out with someone, you want to get married, that's fine. Especially if you think you're being unfair to her, you know, like going out and enjoying going out and not getting married, she's getting older, you know. Or if you're sinning by being inappropriately passionate physically, it's hard to turn the clock back, well, it's better you go ahead and get married. Verse 36, he says, If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him get married. It is no sin. But if that's not the case, if you want to keep being close but not married, you can keep things at a non-sexual level, not going to sin, then feel free not to get married. Use that freedom to serve God. Verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having desire under control, has determined this in his heart to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So the conclusion was that he He who marries his betrothed does well, he who refrains from marriage does even better. Hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? Both ways is good. You marry, that well. Don't marry, even better. So how do you think about marriage? Well, it's the same way you think about what job to take, or what property to buy, about where you live, about your degree, about whether you're going to have children, how many children you're going to have. First priority is, don't sit. Right? That's the absolute. Don't sit. After that, you say, well, how can I best serve Jesus given the priority of the gospel? And the answer to that is going to look different from person to person. You're going to have choices, and you're going to make those choices. My heart that loves God and loves others. And whatever you choose, that's not sinful. Now, whatever you choose, make sure you're not sinning. Whatever you choose, don't put yourselves in, in, in vulnerability to sin. But, first priority is not sin. But after that, you've got freedom. 
Either way, you're still within the revealed will of God. Then you make your choices. And as you make your choices, remember that we are living in the last days. We're living on borrowed time. The gospel's got to go out. Disciples have got to be made. That is our priority. But first, avoid sin. Second, maximize our usefulness for mission. But you marry, you don't marry, both ways. It's okay. So we've talked about marriage, we've talked about being divorced, we've talked about being unmarried, and lastly we're going to talk about being widowed. Right, that's another form of singleness, so that will keep it under the same heading, there are good reasons to be single. Uh, and Paul tells, first of all, well, again, there's freedom not to be single. A wife, verse 39, is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she's, been, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the law. That's, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Right. Marriage is until death do us part. Sometimes you go for weddings and people say, oh, you know, marriage is eternal. That's not eternal. Right? Marriage is not eternal. It's not everlasting. It's only until one of you dies. Okay, that's it. The only marriage that's eternal is the marriage between Christ and the church. That's eternal. That's the real marriage that everything else is pointing to. That's the eternal one. The rest of our marriages is to death. And after that, then you're free to remarry. Though, of course, only in the law. When you have the choice of who to marry, right, then you have to marry someone who belongs to the Lord. Who loves the Lord, who will serve the Lord with. That's not negotiable. Otherwise, to do otherwise is sin. Right. What is wisdom is what you do with that freedom. Right. If you're a widow, you're free. You choose to marry again with the Lord, or you can choose not to marry. And in that context, Paul again gives advice. He says, verse 40, In my judgment, she is happier she remains as she is. I think I too have the Spirit of God. His advice is good advice, especially in the current condition that the Corinthians were facing. His advice is good advice in light of the urgency of the gospel going out. His advice is given in the context of a mind that is renewed by the Spirit. But it's advice. Right? It's not absolute. It's just said, she, can, she is free to marry if she wants to. There's good reasons to be single. But... She can marry as she wishes, though only in the law. So in conclusion then, we have seen that the gospel transforms our understanding of both marriage and singleness. In secular society, marriages produce children and singleness was shameful. But for Christians, both marriage and singleness are means to glorify God. In marriage, we learn to serve the other person. We give ourselves to our spouse in sex and in life and we need to keep doing that. And even when marriage is hard, we don't seek for divorce. Instead, we seek to show the love and faithfulness and grace and forgiveness that God has shown us in Christ. These are names of our sanctification. Marriage is God's general plan for humanity, but it's not to be idolized. There are good things about being single, and in fact, for some of us, it is better to be single. Because we can spend more time and energy serving Christ and his gospel. And that is even more important than the creation. It is a valid lifestyle choice. A choice is all the more important when we remember that this world and all that is in it is passing away. There's something that we live for. It's far more important than singleness or marriage in this world. It's the marriage of Christ and his church. The real marriage is that we are living for and working for that. Whether we're single or married here, that's the thing you don't want to miss out. 
whether you're involved in the type, in the picture, in the shadow, just make sure you're involved in the world. Something more important than marriage is, and that is the key.